Ferdinand Magellan sought to do something no one had been known to have done in the history of ocean travel to the point of his massive journey. Just over two decades after the semi-failure of Chrissy Colombo, Ferdinand had been assigned a fleet of five ships to go west so far that they would end up in the east. Around the world in way more than 80 days, this task would be the legacy of Magellan and he would never do another nor would he even finish this one. Only 7% of the original crew would reach their goal with, without desertion, detaining, or death. It remains a pivotal mission that marked the moment when the growing influence over navigable waters met with one another in a way that had never been done. Who was Magellan? Why was he the man to undertake this mission? And how did it fail so spectacularly? Today, we learn all of that on another episode of The Remedial Scholar. That's ancient history. I feel I was denied critical need to know information. Belongs in a museum, bro. Stop your class. Hello everyone and welcome to the Remedial Scholar. I am Levi and thank you for joining me today on a massive oceanic adventure. Those of you who are returning got a taste of this topic in the Pirates episode, but today we are taking it to a much more in-depth level. If you are new here, welcome. You have a lot of fun facts to learn. Um, <laughs> you don't need to listen to this episode to understand the Pirates episode or vice versa, but... You can listen to either one at your leisure. I mean, personally, I would recommend listening to the Pirates one first because there's a lot more historical context that gets placed. But they should work in conjunction with one another so you can learn the max amount of facts about ocean travel and the dangers that come with it. If you are new here and you learned something interesting today, do me a favor. Leave me a review or a comment on, the, on YouTube or in the Facebook group. These are some of the things that you can do to help improve some of the algorithmic devices that can help others discover the show. If you want to take it a step further, you can check out the merch. Link for that is in the description and available at the link tree slash remedial scholar. You can just type that into Google and it will be the top item in the search. So that <laughs> there's that. A lot of fun designs in the merch store. Uh, some new ones. The uh, Play Freebird shirts, which are inspired by the Singing Revolutions episode, last week's episode. Uh, rousing songs of freedom breaking out at folk festivals inspired the idea. Also a metal band tee from the 80s of the early metal pioneer bands like, that never existed, like Lithuanian book smugglers. These are the new ones, and I think they're pretty fantastic and just in time for Christmas, so tell your friend. Alright, that's it for any announcements or anything front office related. On to the actual content you're here for. The hot details you yearn for. Alright, maybe that, that might have been too much. <laughs> anyway, let's get into it. Today will be a bit of a biographical mix with world context and a dash of world building with where the Age of Sail was during this time, starting with the world at large and age of sail to the point where Magellan was born and into his career before going into accomplishments and then the actual circumnavigation mission and where it all went wrong and where it went right also said at the end of last episode that there was a lot of this that was cut from the pirates episode uh, most of it wasn't included due to the simple fact that I didn't really feel like Magellan needed to be included as his escapades specifically his are not quite what I would call pirate behavior so I deleted it but the story was so interesting that I felt that it needed to be told, and that's what I'm doing today. Resurrecting this from the cutting room floor to give to you all. So I hope you enjoy it. So what was the world like before Magellan entered the pages of history? Well, as previously discussed in the Pirates episode, the race was on to get 
you know, to get to Asia with a quickness, the Portuguese had already decided to go around the Horn of Africa. Spain's decision was to sail west to go east, which wasn't an idea of insanity that we imagine. We kind of have this, uh, <laughs> this perception that they had no idea what they were doing back then, and retroactively and incorrectly assigned that these people back then assumed that there was no way to do this. People have this misconception that they were looking for the end of the world, but really what they were doing was looking to find what land was in the way, if any. Uncharted waters is a bit of an understatement in this endeavor, because up until this point, nobody had really decided just to sail, sail straight out into the open ocean. There's a lot of coastal sailing, hugging coasts, and keeping far out enough from the coast that you're not going to get caught by like reefs and things like that, but not that far into the ocean itself um and also you could get the stronger winds that were out a little deeper into the into the ocean i'll talk about the insanity of going into the open ocean later on but i just wanted to highlight where everyone was at their sailing missions at this point but this was the so-called age of exploration in the eyes of the people that hadn't been in those places but obviously you know people lived in those places just <laughs> just a little bit different the war of roses from 1455 to 1487 had kind of put the brakes on England and their oceanic travels. Uh, <laughs> they had some internal work to do. Portuguese really had a monopoly on trade route to Asia, setting up bases around Africa, and while that was successful, the Dutch and the French kind of followed suit, basically just risking that they weren't gonna get caught by the Portuguese at that point, and doing the exact same thing. The main goal was to get you know, trade flowing, but bulk of it was truly was spices, which is kind of funny to think about it being so valuable that it was the thing like pepper per pound was worth more than two days worth of work and cloves in the same way was up to worth up to five days of work for one medieval craftsman in one source I found and another source. I found that certain spices can be double their weight in gold, which is kind of insane. So what made them so expensive? Well, short answer and the answer given to the consumers was that it was hard to come by. Was this particularly true? Well, slightly. The main issue was that it was far away, and for the general population who didn't have a ship, it was super far away. Ship travel was somewhat difficult, but once the routes had been established and you kind of had bases along the way, port cities that you could dump off in, resupply, it got to be a little bit easier. I mean, it's obviously still dangerous today, but at the time, it was pretty dangerous, all things considered. Before they began to transport the spices via ships, biggest method was trading with the middlemen in the Middle East. Fall of Constantinople and the Byzantine Empire also led to the failure to maintain trade routes to Europe, which had all but eliminated, uh, had all been but eliminated when the Ottoman Empire took over. When the maritime traders had claimed to be able to lower the cost of spices by traveling directly to the sources, many were thrilled at this idea. I have to imagine that the crown of Portugal saw some decent tax money in their future of importing these spices. So as spices began to flow through the ocean highways, the Portuguese traders kept the same markups and justified this as the cost to the difficulties in harvesting them. They were making money hand over fist and this made, one other, uh, made other countries want to do something similar and one other country that rivaled the Portuguese at the time Time was that of the Spanish. The Spanish soon had begun to uh, fund an operation involving one man, Christopher Columbus. As we are all aware, in 1492, he would take a group of ships across the Atlantic, hugging a more northern route to catch what is known as trade winds, known as the Easterlies as well and they navigate from the northeast. There are also some winds called the westerlies, and I'm gonna guess you can figure out on your own where those go. So using these different variations of winds, Columbus sit across the Atlantic, landing in the Bahamas, and we all know how that went. If you don't, submit it for a topic suggestion, and we will get to the bottom of it together. Again, to emphasize, this mission was to find a route that Spain could utilize 
that was free from the Portuguese Horn of Africa route. Columbus also just had an interest in exploring and love for Asia that he learned from studying on Marco Polo, one of his kind of idols. Either way, Columbus does his thing and now people know that it isn't just an insanely vast open ocean straight across to Asia, that there's land there, kind of. Columbus did adamantly deny that this was a new place, <laughs> pretty much up until his death. Um, you know, obviously not true, but he just didn't want to be wrong so bad that he's like, this is, this is the Indies. This is Asia. I'm telling you, like, you don't know. Turns out he's wrong. So how's that? Two years after Columbus's maiden voyage, Spain and Portugal signed a treaty to declare who had the right over which chunks of the ocean. The argument over how weird it is to have a declaration over large portions of the entire world that... House people who don't even speak your language is a little bit funny, but that's not really the purpose of this episode. So they had signed this deal. Spain and Portugal brokered a deal that gave Portugal control over what was the oceans around Europe and Africa and the known portions of Asia, while the rest was left to Spain. I don't know who lobbied for this on the behalf of Portugal, but it seems very unfair to the Spanish. Like, okay, okay, we'll make a deal with you, but we get all of the water around all of the places that we already know exist. And you... You can have the stuff that we don't know for sure if it exists or not. <laughs> Granted, they did essentially get the New World wholesale minus a chunk of Brazil, but the goal or the desire was to have access to where spices were. They had no way to know what spices were in the unnamed Americas, so that's essentially the climate of the world, trying to figure out ways to profit off of a bargain sections of the ocean. And one man believed that despite the fractioned waters, either country could capitalize on heading west to reach the east. So it's time to meet the man right now. Ferdinand Magellan, born Fernal Magalis, 12 years before Columbus would venture across the Atlantic to Rui and Alda, those were his parents. He was born in 1480 to a noble family of Portugal with his father being the sheriff of the port of Aveiro. Makes sense why he would be into ships and traveling and all those things later on. Dad patrolling a bustling port probably made it pretty easy to be intrigued by the wooden hulks bouncing along the horizon. Not much is known about his early childhood, but I do know that by the age of 12, he was sent to be a page for the Queen of Portugal, first with Lenore, who was in power 1495, and then with Manuel I, who reigned after. This job came with some perks, which included the very best of education that he could have the opportunity for at that point in time, being trained for navigation, astronomy, mathematics, especially those those ones especially. The activities of being the Queen's Page range pretty drastically, uh, anything from being a servant to an assistant or even like a messenger. And it sounds like he was just Anne Hathaway and the Devil Wears Prada. Maybe not, but it's fun to imagine 16th century Port Portuguese royalty as Meryl Streep. Also, interesting to note that the very same year Columbus was doing his thing, Magellan was only beginning his formal education and working for the Queen as what it was essentially just a steward. By 1505, he was now part of the Portuguese military, becoming a part of the fleet run by Francisco de Almeida, who was in charge of keeping the Indian waters in check. This fleet would engage in patrols along the east coast of Africa and the Indian Ocean, and essentially secure Portuguese interests in the area. Almeida had gained some fame in some battles against the Moors, who were the Muslim counterparts of the Christians in the southwestern Europe and Mediterranean areas. Following the success of Almeida in those efforts, Manuel had declared him the viceroy of some recent acquisitions of the expanding Portuguese empire. His promotion came at the same time Magellan had been assigned to the fleet. His fleet itself was 21 ships, which, as I mentioned, covered the areas between the Cape of Good Hope, which is the southernmost point of Africa, kind of, and the Indian Ocean, and just 
kind of a little bit outside that range, I suppose. I mean, it probably varied from day to day, but they had taken it to attacking several places in this region during this tenure, which would include a location in modern-day Tanzania, and also Mombasa. This fleet was also responsible for furthering, further expanding the forts along the eastern coast of Africa, and even defeated the combined coalition fleet of Egyptians and other Arabian countries in the war between the good Gujarati Egyptian forces and the Portuguese, which took place in 1511. They also burned down some of their villages and things as well. Through Almeida, a treaty was brokered with the uh, Malacca, which enabled further exploration in these waters due to the strategic position of uh, in the Malaysian Peninsula. It would be in this location where Magellan would purchase a slave, who he would name Enrique. Enrique spoke Malays and was from an, from the Indonesian region, or maybe actually from Malacca. It's kind of disputed. Enrique would be his pseudo-guide in the future, and I have to imagine that he was kind of banking on that at the time, planning on bringing in local a local of the region to be an interpreter when he eventually made his voyage. Plenty of action on behalf of the fleet uh, he was signed to happened, but whether or not Magellan was part of all of that is not known. But I would say spending his time in this fleet probably gave him a healthy amount of wanderlust. Magellan did participate in the aforementioned war against the Gujarati Egyptian forces during this time and was assisted and assisted with the conquest of Portuguese Joa in 1511. Two years later, Ferdinand the Bull was on the move once again, taking his leave back to Portugal. He began acting in an expeditionary manner, fighting in a battle that would leave him scarred for the remainder of his life. The Battle of Azamor in Morocco was one where Magellan found himself essentially pressed into service for the Portuguese crown once more. Magellan's own brother was also allegedly involved. Now, I don't think I've ever explained it in any of the episodes, but since it mentioned him being pressed into military service, I'm going to explain that. Pressing, being pressed into service is not the same rock stacking torture game employed by the Puritans against the OG big man on campus, Mr. Giles Corey. Pressing or impressment is a military servitude when it uh, could be done a couple different ways. Most common was just get a bunch of dudes at the pubs nearest to the port, get them really hammered, and then while they're basically in blackout mode, bring them onto the ship, and then set sail, they wake up, bam free sailors instant profit or you could just take them at gunpoint and hold them hostage or when you capture a vessel that they're on you basically just make them part of your crew those are some of the things wasn't a big practice in the 16th century but the british royal navy eh, they essentially perfected it later on closer to the 19th century especially during the napoleonic wars and in the revolutionary war penalty for resisting pressing was uh, as much fun as the rest of it and the rest of the penalties at that time really is hanging there's also an amazing song called press gang by the murder city devils that is on a regular rotation for me on my gym playlist it's not super important but the song is about a man who is reflecting on someone he knows who was pressed into service and killed for trying to escape anyway in late august 1513 the battle of azamor commenced the portuguese had been assembled as a show of force on behalf of king manuel the first there was a pretty substantial force put together for in this show portugal had been making some real money fat stacks you might say and now they had the money to pay soldiers more and pay for more ships buy more horses that kind of thing better armor weapons just totally balling out so when the sultanate of azamor had given even the slightest reason for king manny to drop the hammer that's that's exactly what happened azamor is on the western coast of morocco and about an hour and change from casablanca so here's looking to you azamor the walled city was no sneezing conquest but with the portuguese superior numbers it was only a matter of time before for it all the fall unfortunately for our topic today ferdinand had a series of unfortunate events which could just summarize his entire life but 
<laughs> for all the gallivanting in the Indies, uh, fighting and securing trade for Portugal and Asia and around Africa, he wasn't paid super handsomely as one might imagine. While he certainly made money, he also chose to invest it poorly and through that investment lost a lot of it. On top of that, his horse was killed in that battle of Azabor and it took a lance directly, which is, you know, never a good day. He himself also took a shot in the knee, which is kind of funny to think about if you have ever played the game Skyrim. Essentially, NPC guards will just say random things to you as you walk around, and one of the things they say is, I used to be an adventurer like you until I took an arrow in the knee. The context in the game is that the guard can no longer be a cool, awesome adventurer because he got shot in the knee and so now, you know, basically just stuck being a guard. I always kind of wondered why he's allowed to be a guard if he's got a bum knee, but anyway. I have seen memes and things that say that uh, Old Norse Scandinavian traditions uh, is what this points to. You know, this phrase is a way for them to say that they got married since you kneel for proposals and things like that. And if you're one of the people that was like, heck yeah, dude, that's, I remember that. Got some bad news. Uh, <laughs> anybody who's ever shared these kinds of memes without any due diligence, which I'm guessing is probably a number of you, but that's okay. We like learning and being proven wrong. So we know in the future when we are wrong. There's no real connection between that phrase and the process of marriage in Scandinavian Norse or anything else. I mean, if you wanted to make it canon for your Skyrim playthrough, go right ahead, but it's not a real thing. Sorry to burst any bubbles, but you are welcome for the fun facts. So anyway, rent aside, why is that ironic, you might ask? Well, because the guard no longer wanting to be an adventurer because he got hit in the knee, while Magellan, a very famous adventurer, gets hit in the knee and proceeds to partake in a very famous adventure that people are still talking about, you know, 500 years later. So now we have first boy injured which will leave him with a limp for the remainder of his life he's 33 by this time and things are going kind of downhill from there following the battle in morocco he was also accused of trading with the moors and this was a major slide against the christian-based portuguese crown top of that he took leave from his post that was unauthorized in nature and that kind of continued his downward spiral after returning to portugal for good in 1514 magellan asked for a raise as he was now plotting to gain funding for his real vision believed that there was another route in which the portuguese could use reach the indies faster than they currently did by using the path columbus took and then sailing south to find a strait to cut through what is now south america and cut across the body of water that inevitably lay on the other side while columbus had landed in the bahamas he himself never stepped foot on american soil and, and while his other ships did find the land that would make up central america no no real idea was had to how far south this land went. Magellan was very determined that there was a strait that would cut across some of the landmass and that it would just be on the other side of the body of water that lie on the opposite end of where the Indies work. So he petitioned and petitioned and petitioned for a raise and a contract and all the things that he might need. It's anything, something. He was adamant that this was the way. But because of his troubles with the Portuguese crown in a way that it in way of his supposed dealings with the Moors and going UA from duty, this was not an expedition that Manuel felt that he needed to invest in. He also had a good route already, why would he need to engage in a potentially treaty-breaking action of sailing into the lands and waters that the Spanish had been given via their Treaty of Tordesillas? Ferdinand was not about to give up, and he knew that if anyone would take the deal, it would be the Spanish. Also, in a weird turn of events that I would not have predicted until I read this stuff, but it makes sense looking at the entire context, is that the King of Portugal told me Magellan that no one last time but told him that he would probably have better luck asking the Spanish. Looking at it without any context kind of sounds crazy that the king of one place is telling you to go to his direct competitor with some potentially big money making route. You could argue that's because the Portuguese already 
already controlled one major route, then there was no real reason for him to accept it, and that he didn't fear losing any money due to their presence in Asia and Indonesia. That all makes sense, but then when you take into account that Ferdinand worked for King Manuel in his first years as a king, he probably knew Magellan pretty well, because because of this, he was given you know, giving his longtime friend a fair shot. So, with the guidance of Manuel, Ferdinand did just that. This worked in favor of what the King of Spain was planning as well, since they clearly needed to figure something out to complete to compete with Portugal. Magellan was accompanied with a few other Portuguese explorer types when they met with Charles I of Spain in late 1517. They would then swear allegiance over to Spain from Portugal, and that is also what inspired his name change. Going from the very Portuguese-sounding Fernão de Magalhães, to Fernando de Magalhães. A few centuries of whitewashing later and we get Ferdinand Magellan. So if you're curious about how that happened, now you're not. The plan itself was really simple and I have kind of discussed it lightly here, but there were plenty of people who had surmised that if you sail west and cut through Tierra Firme, the province in which was founded on the South American mainland in 1498, you would eventually find an inlet that you could cut through and this would be his route. Nobody had traveled so far down to locate such an inlet or strait, but they soon had the funding of the Spanish crown and that was, you know, the push that they needed to actually get this thing going. Honestly, Spain was the best bet for a few reasons aside from the desperation to compete with Portugal. They had history on their side. What do I mean by that? Well, young Charles I was actually the grandson of Isabella who had given Columbus his big break and he was ready to do something that would make him equally famous. Now this it's kind of amusing because how many of you know exactly who Christopher Columbus is? I mean, less of you probably know who Magellan is, but I'm assuming not many of you know who Queen Isabella or King Charles I were. <laughs> I'm sure this changes when you get out of the United States educational system, but unless you were actively learning about history, you wouldn't recognize their names aside from being able to put together that they were probably royalty in the medieval times. That's not also not super important, but kind of interesting in my opinion opinion. So Magellan sought to prove essentially that not only was there a route Spain could take that wasn't touching Portugal's route as laid out by the Treaty of Tordesillas, but that the Spice Islands were in route to was actually technically in the west sphere of influence and thus belonged to Spain. You know, not knowing where the closed end of the globe was, it was easy for Portugal to go, well that's ours because we can go east and then bam we land it. But if it's actually closer going to the west and finding it then technically it would be on Spain's side right so in May of 1518 Magellan officially received the charter to get his expedition off the ground or in the water a crew of more than 270 men was assembled five ships prepared and some of the best cartographers navigators to join him on his voyage before we get to the actual trip I want to rehash the insanity that it is uh, the idea to cross ocean at this time and some of the things that could occur during these trips as well as give a brief overview of the types of ships that were used on the voyage if you listen to the pirates episode this is going to be a refresher but I think it's important to keep in mind the impressive feats accomplished by these explorers given with what they had crossing the open ocean is just Kind of insane to consider. I have crossed it in a sideways skyscraper and even with that sheer mass, the blue jello shifted that thing with ease. It wasn't like insane like capsizing levels, but it was enough to make you respect the hell out of it. It's not lost on me why so many coastal 
cultures have reverence for the water and the gods that may control it. It wasn't always obvious to me as I grew up in a triple, maybe even quadruple landlocked state depending on if you count only the United States or if you include Canada and Mexico and their subsequent states. So I didn't see the ocean in person until I was 18 and I still haven't been inside. I've lived above it but never has my skin touched any ocean body of water. So there's that. Basically what I'm trying to say is the ocean's big, really big. You just won't believe how vastly, hugely, mind-bogglingly big it is. At flat elevation, the human eye can only see around three miles ahead. From the western coast of North Africa to North America, that's 3,000 miles. That's massive. The food, water, all of it is very difficult to make it last that entire trip. It took Columbus and his expedition five weeks from the Canary Islands to the Bahamas just to kind of give you some insight of how potentially long it took. The food stored on board are also something very, like they're not great. It's usually simple, salted meats and hardtack are probably the most common. Hardtack is also sometimes referred as sea biscuits. It consists of uh, flour, water, salt, and can stay preserved for long periods of time, but also it's super hard. The trick is to soak it in water, break it into chunks, and dip it into water or beer, or lose your teeth by biting into it. To have fresh water on the boat, there was a few methods that worked especially well, the most standard being just having the casks of water stored, or asterisks, but you could also collect rainfall from the sails, you could hold you could have sheep pelts collect water vapor but typically as I mentioned it's just casks of drinkable liquids the use of the words liquid here is purposeful since they often had weak beer or alcohols that they consumed instead of water as it would keep longer and also was resistant to different types of bacteria and fresh water was kind of a mixed bag at the time anyway. Hello, dysentery. The beer was relatively weak so that they would, you know, not be belligerent constantly. And you needed your wits about you at all times on the open ocean. There's also a phenomenon, you know, that you could get into called doldrums, which was where there was no winds. You just sat stagnant. So you waiting for a breeze to come through you have to maneuver around the wind to get anywhere and it's always a difficult task to kind of navigate in some circumstances so these are some of the main reasons why i think it was not a common occurrence until so much later without that laid out let's get an idea of the crew numbers and the ships and so on like i said there's five ships in total each a carrick style ship if you remember from the pirates episode the carrick consisted of a large sturdy ship with a high rounded stern broad beams three or four masts depending on the size. These masts supported a variety of sails including the iconic Latin sails on the aft masts. Now what set the Carrick apart from up uh, from its seafaring counterparts of the time? Well it's a bit of a multitasker. The Carrick was kind of like the Swiss army knife of ships. It could handle long ocean voyage, carry hefty cargo, and still be nimble enough for naval action. Its design struck a balance between cargo capacity and seaworthiness making it perfect for exploration and trade. The Carrick's ability to carry a substantial amount of cargo was was the game changer. Its large hold allowed for the transportation of goods which was obviously crucial during an era when trade routes were expanding and new lands were being discovered. This design was particularly popular among other explorers like Columbus and Vasco da Gama during the 15th and 16th centuries. Now the ships were the Trinidad who was captained by the man himself Magellan, San Antonio captained by Juan de Cartagena, the Conception captained by Gaspar de Quesada, Santiago captained by Juan Serrano, and the Victoria who was captained by Luis Mendoza. The Trinidad had the largest of the crews with 62, the Santiago had the smallest with the 33, but it wasn't the smallest ship. 
that would actually go to the Victoria. As mentioned, there are 270 men amongst all of them. Some had joined after a quick stop in Tenerife. The crew largely multicultural, featuring many Portuguese, which makes sense because Magellan was actually Portuguese, but also he had Greeks, Irish, English, Asian, African, French, and of course Spanish people, even a couple northern Scandinavians. The crew had a change up before the voyage as well. Rui Faliero, who helped to pitch the voyage to the gang, developed some mental illnesses before the trip and was removed at the request of the king. And I have to wonder if he was relieved after all of it. I'm, it's impossible to know because he was seriously troubled, but you know, he had gone from being a co-captain of this expedition to being left behind. Now he had personally created one fourth of the charts that were used on the voyage and the crew was using his tools as well in his absence. So, uh, Anyway, that's a major bulk of this bit, so let's get into the actual void. On August 10th, 1519, Ferdinand Magellan's fleet, comprising of five ships, embarked on historic journey. You know, they, they set sail. They departed from Seville, and then they traveled down a river until, until reaching the coastal town of San Lucar. They did happen to stay in San Lucar, probably more than they should have. They stayed there for five weeks. But they, you know, were preparing further. Finally, September 20th, 1519, fleet officially left like not just the kind of ah false start they actually left they left from spain to the canary islands and that would be their final jumping off point before going across the ocean on september 26th they halted at tenerife which was in the canary islands this pause this pause served a dual purpose replenishing essential supplies and making a couple acquisitions of vegetables and pitch and you know had to basically buy some things that were a little cheaper than they were in spain however amidst the uh, logistical preparations an undercurrent a little bit of a uh, little bit of espionage going on magellan received a tip off from his father-in-law diago barbosa the letter told that there was a mutinous plot brewing among certain spanish captains spearheaded by juan de cartagena of the san antonio to compound matters Magellan discovered that the Portuguese king, his former friend, had dispatched two caravel fleets with the explicit aim of apprehending him. I don't know if it was like jealousy or what. He didn't, maybe he didn't think that Charles was actually going to approve it, so now Manuel's mad. I don't know. Undeterred by the looming threats, the fleet now armed with newfound intelligence resumed its journey on October 3rd, 1519, sailing southward along the imposing African coast. Dissenting voices began to arise of the captains regarding the optimal course. Juan de Cartagena advocated for a more western, uh, westerly bearing, presented Magellan with a navigational dilemma. See, most of his crew didn't like the fact that he decided to trace the contour of the African coastline. It was unconventional, and the reason that he chose this because he thought it was going to outsmart the Portuguese caravels that were following him. Now, this unorthodox manner showcased Magellan's strategic acumen and determination to safeguard the ambitious expedition from external threats, setting the tone for this epic voyage. As October waned, the armada under the leadership of Ferdinand Magellan confronted with the wrath of a turbulent weather as it approached the equator expedition's progress was hindered by the ferocity of these intense storms that's another thing i forgot to bring up storms get hit by a hurricane that'd be crazy compelling the crew to implement evasive maneuvers such as striking their sails amidst the squalls notably chronicled by pigafetta an astute recorder of the expedition's events its tumultuous conditions bore witness to a mythical phenomenon saint elmo's fire which i didn't even think that movie was out back then no, of course, that's silly. <laughs> that's a 1985 movie starring Rob Lowe. And if I'm being honest, I may or may not have decided to include this strictly due to the fact that it shares the name as that movie. St. Elmo's Fire is a plasma discharge from ionized particles, which glowing in low light scenarios, named after Erasmus of Formia. How do you get 
Elmo from that? I don't know. Anyway, also, how many saints come up in these episodes? It's kind of crazy. We get a lot of saints. Either way, Saint Elmo is the patron saint of sailors, so that makes sense. Saint Elmo's fire was a celestial display that the crew interpreted as a favorable omen, an ethereal manifestation, especially during the dark and perilous nights. And this acted as a beacon of hope, offering solace to the a little diminished spirits of the crew in the face of the impending danger. The tempestuous weather persisted for approximately two weeks, subjecting the armada to unyielding forces of nature. During this formidable trial, the fleet navigated through storms that tested their mettle. Subsequent to this tumultuous period, the armada also found itself in contrasting state. After the storms passed, it was pretty calm, but also too calm. That's right, they hit the doldrums that I mentioned. Not great. Impeding the progress of the vessels, the doldrums lacked the wind to push the sails. In the midst of the calm, the south, south equatorial current emerged as a guiding force that began to steer the Yamato westward. This turn of events eventually positioned the fleet in the vicinity of the trade winds, luckily enough. This phase, marked by the delicate balance between the tumultuous storms and moment of respite, underscored the expedition's resilience as they navigated unpredictable elements of open sea. The interplay of challenges and reprieves became a defining feature of their journey journey, shaping the narrative of Magellan's ambitious quest for uncharted territories. Now, during the ocean crossing, a disturbing incident unfolded aboard the Victoria. The Sicilian master of the vessel, Salomon Antone, was discovered engaging in an act of sodomy with a Genoese apprentice sailor named Antonio Varesa. Despite the common occurrence of homosexual activities on long naval voyages, such actions were punishable by death in Spain during that time. Magellan conducted a trial on board the Trinidad, finding Salomon guilty and sentencing him to death by strangulation, which is aggressive. Anton would meet his fate in Brazil, December 20th, 1519. That was the plan. They were just going to wait till they made landfall that they would actually execute him. And then once, once he was actually executed, they burned his... Uh, his body. Varesa, on the other hand, met a tragic end by drowning after either being thrown over or jumping to his death. Following the sodomy trial, dissent among Magellan's captains surfaced. In a confrontation, Cartagena declared his refusal to follow Magellan's command, prompting Magellan to signal armed loyalists to apprehend him. This unfolded as Cartagena called on two other Spanish captains, Quesada and Mendoza, to stab Magellan, but they hesitated. After the confrontation, Cartagena found himself in the stocks. While Magellan could have pursued harsher punishment, he opted, influenced by Quesada and Mendoza, to relieve Cartagena of his command on the San Antonio, which allowed him limited freedom aboard the Victoria. And then Antonio de Coca took over as the new captain of the San Antonio. The crew arrived in Brazil in late November and cruised down the shores of Brazil until spending some time in Rio de Janeiro. The locals were used to some Portuguese visitors by now, but no settlement had been built at this point. The crew began trading with the locals, even finding that they could get sexual favors for trading uh, with some of the local women. Makes sense, three months at sea, and it's clearly not a love-conducing environment, so you gotta do what you gotta do. They continued down the coast of South America, looking for a strait to slip through, but no such luck. They wintered at the southern end where they would name Port St. Julian. And then after landing, the, literally the next day, another mutiny occurred where one of the other captains attempted to overthrow a different captain, but then ended up getting stabbed himself. They did have a good plot though, and even managed to take the victory over, but by way of some sneaky countermeasures and lies about secret letters, Luis Mendoza was killed and the mutiny ended. Another man was sit was beheaded for his role in the mutiny and others were chained and tortured for playing their parts. I guess his uh, gentle nature kind of lost out after <laughs> continually trying to get mutinied. Even a priest and another man were marooned for death when the ships departed St. Julian. A ship also ran aground and capsized, which is... 
you know, never good. These dudes just keep on trucking, looking for the strait, though, and they, they did find one, you know, like, way, way down at the southern tip of South America after a year of after, <laughs> a year after arriving on the other side, so I guess that's a win. Now, if you look at pictures of this area, the Strait of Magellan, you can see just how, like, islandy it is, and while they attempted to navigate through this, one ship just deuced out and went back to Spain. That's where 55 of the 270 went, by the way. <laughs> the ship returned, reporting all these crazy things about Magellan and how ruthlessly torturing people unnecessarily, which is kind of ironic because they had tortured his cousin on the trip back to get him to agree to the allegations that they were going to levy against Magellan. Although it wasn't a complete loss, Magellan and the Armada tried to find the ship that ended up just piecing out he saw how calm the pacific ocean was and named it such mar pacifico so that's where the name comes from neat it's also not accurate at all <laughs> it sounds great and maybe off the very southern tip of south america the pacific ocean might look super calm it's not it's very big and violent <laughs> anyway after that he was like hey guys hey we rounded through this really cool strait of magellan named after i don't know probably a pretty cool guy i guess should be should be about three to four days to the East Indies. You're welcome. And the next bit, super gnarly. While he thought it would be a quick jaunt to the Indies, he did not know that he was crossing the largest of oceans. Crossing the Pacific took him nearly four months to do so, which is a far cry from his anticipated three to four days. Talk about a are we there yet moment. Magellan and his contemporaries severely miscalculated the expanse of the Pacific Ocean, envisioning it as a narrow expanse separating south america from the spice islands just like a little bit just a little guy their anticipation of a swift three to four day crossing of this imagined sea collided with the stark reality of the three month and 20 day journey before reaching guam and the philippines now as they emerged from the strait of magellan on november 28 1520 the fleet initially set a course north along the chilean coast later adjusting to a west northwest by mid-december unfortunately in their route the expedition missed potential encounters with pacific islands like the marshall islands the society islands the solomon islands or the marquesas islands these missed opportunities for replenishment replenishment on crucial supplies instead they stumbled upon two small uninhabited islands islas infortunadas which proved to be pretty much inaccessible <laughs> the first sighted on january 24th and likely puka puka was named san pablo and the second sighted on february 21st likely caroline island became waypoints for the challenging journey crossing the equator on february 13th marked a pivotal moment as they continued on the expedition's resilience was put to the test as the remaining ships ill prepared for the prolonged voyage grappled with shortages of essential provisions much of the seal meat and the stores succumbed to putrefaction in the equatorial heat. In his journal, Pigafetta vividly depicted the dire circumstances detailing the crew's resilience on deteriorated biscuits infested with grubs, discolored and foul-smelling water, toughened oxides, sawdust, and the consumption of expensive rats. The pervasive threat of scurvy, an ailment not comprehended at the time, afflicted a majority of the crew. Out of the 166 men embarking on the Pacific Crossing, 19 succumbed to harsh conditions, while 25 to 30 fell ill with various different illnesses. The hits just keep coming. Notable exceptions to these illnesses were Magellan, Pigafetta, and then a bunch of other officers who evaded the scourge of scurvy. This fortunate circumstance was potentially attributed to their consumption of preserved quince, unbeknownst to them containing vital vitamin C that shielded them from the deb debilitating effects of scurvy. Amidst the adversities of the Pacific Crossing, the crew's health, availability of provisions, and unforeseen challenges of open sea became pivotal factors shaping the narrative of Magellan's ambitious exploration to this 
point. After finally arriving in Guam and in the Philippines in March 19, uh, 19, 1521, he was embraced by locals and Magellan's slave Enrique was able to communicate with some of them as he was, as I mentioned before, Malacca, from Malacca, which is off the coast of Malaysia. More so in the Philippines than Guam, were they more excited? They did meet with the Camoro people, but they uh, left one dead and they had miscommunication on understanding what gifts were and then what was just personal property. So that didn't go good. Magellan ended up naming the island. Isla de los Ladrones, Island of the Thieves, and then proceeded to send raiding parties to the island and burn 50 houses and killed a handful of these uh, people. Not a good look. When they reached the Philippines on March 16th, things were better than the last encounter, I guess. They uh, began to trade small goods, receiving Chinese painted ceramics, showing them their shiny Spanish weapons and armor, spreading the Christian word. Probably confused as to what happened since the original goal was to find the Spice Islands from the West. You're not alone. It's not known specifically why why he decided to just be converting people left and right, but nonetheless, that's just what he was doing. Upon nearing Limasawa, the expedition encountered natives in canoes who promptly alerted warship belonging to local rulers of Mindanao. In a noteworthy development, Magellan's slave Enrique discovered his ability to communicate further with some of these as they moved closer and closer, signaling that the completion of the circumnavigation was very close. Engaging in diplomatic gestures, the parties exchanged gifts, fostering a budding relationship. Magellan seized the opportunity, met with local leaders Raja Kalambo and then Raja Sawi. The encounter led to establishment of a profound blood brother relationship between Magellan and Raja Kulambu, solidified through a local ritual. I don't know if it was like the cutting of the palms and then shaking hands or what, but this thing, this ritual symbolized mutual trust and allegiance. During their stay at Limasawa, Spanish explorers marveled at golden ornaments, plates adorned by the Rajas. In conversations with local leaders, Magellan's men discovered that gold was abundant in Bhutan and Kalagan. The Rajas expressed that uh, they had an interest in trading gold for iron, which kind of set the stage for the potential economic exchanges between these two cultures. Magellan, realizing the potential influence of showcasing Spanish prowess, presented a display of Spanish armor, weapons, and artillery. Demonstration left a lasting effect uh, on the locals, contributing to the establishment of a favorable image of the Spanish among the islanders. On Easter Day, March 31st, Magellan and 50 men participated in an event, the first Catholic Mass in the Philippines, held in Limasawa. The ceremony, attended by Raja Kulambu, Islanders, Magellan's crew, marked the introduction of Christianity to the archipelago. Post-mass, Magellan's men erected a cross on the island's highest hills, symbolically declaring Limasawa and the entirety, entire Philippine archipelago as possesses possessions of Spain, referring to the islands as St. Lazarus. This proclamation signified the formal establishment of Spanish influence in the region, laying the foundation for enduring impact of Christianity and European colonization in the Philippines. On April 2nd, Magellan and his crew had set about trying to confer their next course of action. His officers believed the best route was to head southwest for the Moluccas, which is different from the Malaccas, but Magellan was headstrong about pushing further into the Philippines. The next day, they set sail into the northeast or northwest, landing in Cebu, which had been given like the it directions had been given to them from their interaction with with Rajak Kalambu. 
They landed on April 7th and were happy to find that Cebu was a hub of trade in the area. They had goods from the Middle East, China, India, all over. Cebu had typically required some sort of tribute to be paid to participate in the trade, which is understandable. But the leader of the island, Raja Humaban, had personally waived this for the European visitors. Raja Humaban was also baptized in a show of good faith between the two cultures alongside his family on April 14th. After this, the other locals were more likely to do so and upwards of 2,000 of them were converted. One island nearby was not so welcoming of this gesture and stood out as opposition to the mission, the island of Mactan, whose leader, Lapu-Lapu, was fervent in his displeasure against conversion, which is kind of like uh, kerosene to a powder keg of peace in stories like these. His opposition was more to the tune of not supporting Humaban as a leader and wished to be the leader instead, but either way, Magellan thought that this was something that he could do to further impress Humaban and strengthen their new alliance. With either ignorance or arrogance in full effect, on April 27th, 1521, Magellan approached the island of Mactan with only 60, albeit heavily armed, soldiers. They were backed by Filipino boats that were full of warriors, but Magellan was confident that the, superior, the superiorly equipped Europeans would scare away Lapu-Lapu and his warriors. Further entrenched this idea, Magellan only took 49 men with him, leaving 10 with Humaban and his men. They initially set ablaze to houses that they immediately found, and then this just kind of made Lapu-Lapu more mad. The European soldiers were quickly assaulted with spears and other ranged weapons. They returned fire via muskets and crossbows, but it seemed like it was not really doing much to the native warriors. The Europeans' heavily armor made it harder for them to maneuver properly in the muddy beach. Lapu-Lapu's warriors were agile and used to the terrain in comparison. Lapu-Lapu also recognized Magellan from before and had targeted him specifically, which resulted in his being hit with a poisonous spear. He was not the only one, as the 50 Europeans were outnumbered by a reported 1,500 warriors, according to Pigafetta's contemporary Despite their impressive armor and weapons, they were not immune to any of these and then had been hit by many poisonous arrows, spears, that kind of thing. Magellan was specifically targeted after he had been hit with a poisonous barrage and Pigafetta noted this later. They seemed to focus their strikes on Magellan specifically, swinging swords, blunt objects, all these kinds of things at him and the others that were around him until they were completely overpowered by sheer number of Lapu-Lapu's force, forces and even some of the warriors Humaban had brought had been killed in for aiding them in the first place. Magellan was killed along with the others but not the entirety of the crew or natives that had joined them. Pigafetta was with him on the beach but managed to escape back to the boats and then back to safety. Magellan's body was also left with Lapu-Lapu and Humaban tried to negotiate a deal for a large portion of copper and other treasures for his return, but Lapu-Lapu kept it as a war. After Magellan's death, his will was found on the ship. It noted that his slave Enrique was supposed to be released upon his death, which is nice. Unfortunately, after Magellan's death, uh, this, this was a point of contention to both the new captains, Magellan's brother-in-law being one, Duarte Barbosa, and Juan Sorano being the other. Both potential captains had no interest of releasing Enrique and wished for him to continue his current post as interpreter during the remainder of their journey. After learning of this fact, Enrique had engaged in some double agency and used his ability to communicate with Humaban without the Europeans knowing what's happening to his disadvantage or to his advantage. Following this interaction on May 1st, 1521, some 30 of the remaining 145 were invited to a feast by Humaban to celebrate their time together on shore. This included two potential captains and most and mostly officers who were present. At the end of the meal, Cebu warriors entered the hall and then began to slaughter the European men who attended. 
Only one of them was spared as he was dragged out to the beach in an attempt ransom. He told the men still aboard the ships that everyone had been slain at the feast, everyone except for Enrique himself. Negotiation never happened and the remaining crew sailed away, leaving Serrano for death. 115 men remained of the original 270 at this point. The crew realized that they did not have the numbers or crew numbers to crew the remaining three vessels, so they stripped what was needed from the conception and burned it. Trinidad and Victoria bounded around the Southeast Asia, searching for the Moluccas and their spice hall. It was at this moment where I had a fluctuation on if I should include them in my pirates episode or not, because they engaged in piracy against different ships in the region. Most notably, they uh, captured a Chinese junk that had left Moluccas. They struggled to find any real direct for six months and the captain who had assumed control following the departure of the Philippines, Carvalho, had stepped down in September of 1521. Martin Mendez assumed the control following this with Gonzalo de Espinosa and Juan Sebastian Alcano both captaining the two vessels, Alcano on the Victoria and Espinosa on the Trinidad. Alcano and the crew aboard the Victoria had been attacked by a fleet of Bruneans off the coast, off the coast of Borneo, a large island southwest of the Philippines. Some historians believe these attackers to be a Prince of Manila, Prince Achi. This interaction actually proved fruitful for a number of reasons. Number one, Okano got to show his fortitude as a captain, and number two, after capturing the force, Achi left uh, Moore, who spoke Spanish, that would be a major assistance, kind of a replacement of Enrique at some point. Finally, after years of travel, on November 8th, 1521, they arrived in Moluccas. Luckily for them, the interaction with the leader of the island they landed on Tidor was friendly. Al-Mansur, the second sultan of Tidor, welcomed the trade and allegiance with the Spanish. His rival, the sultan of Ternate, was already working with the Portuguese, so his plan was to work with the Spanish and create a wealth that way. The Spanish spent over a month with their new allies, trading goods and accruing large stores of clothes in tow. When the Spanish departed, this, after establishing this fruitful relationship, one which Al-Mansur would never see fulfilled in his lifetime, trouble was back on their tail. The Trinidad had fallen into a state of disrepair and the crew stayed behind to repair it while the Victoria decided to move forward. The Victoria entered charted waters once again on December 21st, 1521 in the Indian Ocean and took the route around the Africa around Africa to sail back to Spain. The remainder of the trip for the Victoria was relatively uneventful, which is good considering they had more adventure in the past two years or a few years than most had in their entire lives. I mean, an additional 20 men did die of starvation by the time they made port on the 9th of July, 1522. They ran at the Cape of Good Hope just two months prior on May 6th and between that and Cape Verde on uh, 20 had died. When they made port, they were confused by the port officer telling them that the date was in fact the 10th of July and not the 9th as their meticulously kept records had stated. We all know that this was the date line change which is pretty interesting to see it noted in such an, such an example here. I also experienced this, but in the opposite way. I repeated a day in 2015 when we crossed the dateline, and oddly enough, in a career full of traditions and superstitions, it was decided we were to repeat Friday the 13th. It was all downhill from there, really. No. Anyway, <laughs> the Victoria crew used a cover story that they were returning from the returning from the Americas back to Spain, which held up at first. When the ship was inspected, found to be carrying uh, spices that were, you know, known to come from East Indies. Thirteen of the men were apprehended and thrown in jail, and the remaining crew escaped their haul of 26 tons of both cinnamon and cloves, untouched by the Portuguese. September 6, 1522, Victoria and 18 of its crew 
arrived in Spain. Ironically, the Victoria was the smallest of the ships on voyage, as I mentioned before, and it's the one that made the trip, which is kind of interesting. But what about the Trinidad? Well, they were captured by the Portuguese after a decision to go back through the Pacific route, which seems like a dumb idea considering all that they went through. They actually didn't leave uh, Tidor until April of 1522, so a lot of repairs were needed, or they just really emplaced that, or really enjoyed that place. Three men deserted following poor navigation, and then 30 died from scurvy, so they turned back to the Moluccas, and it was there when they were captured by the Portuguese ships. They had initially expected resistance, the Portuguese did, but when they came up closer on the ship, they realized that this ship and crew was in no fighting shape. It was eventually wrecked in a storm while anchored in a Portuguese port after they had been arrested. All men aboard, all men that had remained, were arrested and only five of them would eventually be returned to Spain after several years of hard labor. So, in the words of Borat, great success. No, no, of course not. Mission, while it did technically succeed in the way where it had survivors and those survivors did go back to where they originally came from, guess maybe. If you remember, Magellan was going to prove that the western influence which Spain controlled included Moluccas and some more of the Spice Islands, and because of this would give Spain a foot in the door with the global trade of spices. Did they end up proving that? Nah, not really. Eventually, after both countries had uh, several experts in navigation, cartography, and astronomy dissect the expedition and the new gained information to figure out where the Spice Islands lay, before anyone could ever agree, Portugal paid Charles of Spain, now Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire, 350,000 gold ducats, which in term, which in terms of how much they could buy back then were around $26 in United States dollars now, so one ducat had the purchase power of $26 today, but also it had around $140 in gold value, so around 9 million on the low end of the scale, which is pretty decent. Subsequent voyages had the Spanish gain control in the Philippines eventually anyway, so I don't think Charles was sweating the loss of control in that way. Speaking on those follow-up voyages, in 1524 saw the Loaysa expedition named after Garcia Joffre de Loaysa, Loaysa lead an expedition following the route of Magellan, albeit a little more direct. Sir Francis Drake, remember him? He also followed Magellan's route in 1578, which also saw a lot of randomness, but not nearly as deadly or intense as this one. Also, by 1565, Spain had begun to occupy Central America and established a non-canal Panama connection. Ships coming from the Philippines would deposit goods, and then they would be transported on land to the other side, and then loaded onto ships that would go back to Spain. In 1960, big time jump here, the Magellan route was traced as closely as possible by a vessel that was underwater completely. The USS Triton circumnavigated the globe using Magellan's route as its baseline. Of course, being a submarine, some parts it couldn't physically go to, but for the most part, it was true to the course. So that's kind of neat. And that's it about the actual journey. How did f people feel about the journey and Magellan after it had been done? Well, re realistically, people were not pumped. Magellan died and with his death went a lot of the loyalty that of those around him may have had. The crew of the San Antonio, which had, you know, doubled back back to Spain, spouted plenty of things that put Magellan in a bad light in, in the eyes of the country. And, you know, Portugal already hated him for being a traitor. The crew of the San Antonio were also put on trial when they returned without Magellan, but to escape desertion charges, they told differing versions of the events of the mutiny in St. Julian. Elcano, the captain of the Victoria, when it arrived, had also taken part in that mutiny, so when he arrived, he was questioned by the king. But instead of bringing the voyage's chronicler, Pic 
Pigafetta, he brought some other people, some people loyal to him, and was able to spin the events into making those guys and himself look better. Pigafetta was loyal to Magellan all the way through and was one of taking notes about literally everything all the time because he was the chronicler. So, acting upon himself, he would provide copies of his notes to Charles, the Portuguese, French, and other notable people at the time. In these notes, he published the he published in 1524. From that, there's a passage dedicated to Magellan, which I'm going to read for you now. He says, Magellan's main virtues were courage and perseverance in even the most difficult situations. For example, he bore hunger and fatigue better than the rest of us. He was a magnificent, practical seaman who understood navigation better than all of his pilots. Best proof of his genius is that he circumnavigated the world, none having preceded him asterisk i mean he technically never circumnavigated it i mean unless he managed to go to the philippines before he had actually went there the last time but you know technically didn't actually do it but he was the first one to be assigned to like take this on which is pretty impressive i think that quote's a good place to kind of back out of magellan and kind of wrap up the episode with some of the things that we learned today number one absolutely not <laughs> you will not catch me trying to replicate that journey with the equivalent equipment or food at all. I'll do it in like a massive yacht maybe and then <laughs> maybe maybe a lot of money. Insanity. Also love the inclusion of St. Elmo's Fire even though I'm the one that decided to include that. I think it's, it is an interesting part of this tale and it is unfortunate that these guys were like God, yeah that's awesome. I'm so excited <laughs> and, then it, and then it only got worse from there really. <laughs> Um, also, literally so many things went wrong and yet they just kept pushing forward, obviously. I mean, what else What else could you really do at that point in time? I do want to know how it was like for those dudes that got marooned, but, you know, I don't, I don't think there's any one, one way to tell about that. Francis Drake did note that they had found skulls of humans that were bleached from the sun when they arrived in that area some 30 years later. 40 years later so that's kind of interesting i think one of the biggest things about magellan is the glaringly obvious fact that the man synonymous with circumnavigation is actually not the first one to do so since he died halfway through actually oddly enough enrique his slave may have actually been the first human to complete a full circumnavigation of the globe why didn't he dip out in the philippines Yes, but it is believed after the massacre on May 1st of 1521, he left back to his home. Magellan said he was a native of, Mal of Malacca, which is Malaysia today, and Pigafetta also believed him to be Indonesian, but he traveled from Malacca to Portugal with Magellan in 1511, and then Spain to Cebu during the expedition from 1519 to 1521, so all he had to do was find his way home. So all he had to do was find his way home, and then he would have been the first human to fully circumnavigate the globe that we know of. I mean, kind of. We don't actually know. <laughs> um, and since he left in 1521, you know, May 1521, and he was drastically closer to his home of origin than Elcano and all the other guys were, because they had to go all the way to Spain, he may very well have been the first. I mean, we're never going to know, because he disappears from the written record after the expedition. Either way... The men on this voyage sailed through so many obstacles, crazy distances, finding diseases, starvation, and everything else. They traveled an estimated 60,000 miles in total, which seems excessive, but all of it was. And they were the first to do so, which has to count for something. So with that, let's get out of here. <laughs> 
I hope you all enjoyed that. I'm very happy with it. I, th I thought it was very interesting. A lot more interesting than you kind of just expect something to go. I think it had a little bit of everything. Biography, adventure, tragedy. You know, let me know what you thought or what you already knew about Magellan in the comments on the Facebook, YouTube, all those things. If you have an idea for a topic, email me or post it. Facebook email is remedialscholar at gmail.com. Next week. We are keeping it old school, but not as old school as this one, <laughs> and are discussing the life and tragedy of one Marie Antoinette. What? <laughs> it's crazy. And the French Revolution. Mostly the French Revolution, but I felt like it was time to actually talk about Marie, being as how she is one of my favorite designs that I have ever made for this show. Uh, actually, the shirt I'm wearing right now, the Heads Will Roll shirt. And if you want one of those, go check out the merch. <laughs> Pretty sweet. Um, but yeah, so next week, going back to France for like the fourth time since this show's inception. I promise it's not on purpose, but you know, it, it's interesting. <laughs> In the meantime, share us with your friends, review wherever possible, check out the merch, and just keep being curious, and I will see you next time. Bye!